Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hong Kong, with its complicated history, has long been a unique mix. Part Chinese, part British, as this archive from the 1930s, with its rather dated attitudes, highlights. Under tolerant and wise British rule, with willing Oriental assistance, has grown a modern Western city in an Eastern setting, where more than a million contented Chinese dwell in harmony, merging their ancient civilization, culture, and manners with those of the 20,000 Europeans who guide or minister to them. For years, it was that unique mix that made Hong Kong, a former British colony, an exceptional economic success. It has long been one of the major financial, trading, and business capitals of the world. Hong Kong has been able to provide such a rapidly rising standard of life for its people. But now, 25 years after it was handed back to China, Hong Kong is experiencing tumultuous times. There's just crazy scenes here in central Hong Kong. Everyone's running. Is this the beginning of the end of democracy in Hong Kong? Hong Kong has fallen into a technical recession for the second time in the last three years. China had promised that Hong Kong would carry on as one country with two systems that would coexist. But as protests are quashed and opposition voices are imprisoned, fears are rising for what comes next. The paramount leader, Deng Xiaoping, told us not to be scared because there will be one country, two systems, and we can continue our free lifestyle. But now people say, oh my God, it's not true. We are very scared. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, inside Hong Kong, a city on the edge. COVID is still a huge thing over there, and it's like winding your watch back because you arrive, you do a lateral flow test immediately, and then um, you're straight into a COVID taxi. Your baggage gets sprayed down before it goes in the back of the car. And then you're off in a slightly clapped-out old car driven by a guy in scrubs. 
That's Oliver Shah, associate editor of the Sunday Times, and he's just got back from Hong Kong. It's pretty spectacular to drive in because you see skyscrapers rising up out of the greenery. It's very beautiful, that contrast of the tropical lushness and then this high-tech, futuristic cityscape. Packed streets, very busy, very hot, still quite exhilarating despite all the problems it currently has because you have the combination of the Cantonese energy, the street life, the wet markets, people scaling fish with knives and chainmail gloves. You have all these kind of slightly old world things. Then you have the big glass towers. It's still a very beautiful, high impact place to visit. And Oliver, what's life like there now? There are no traffic jams, which is very unusual. The price of taxi licenses has tumbled, which is a key indicator. Lots of places have shut down. Lots of popular streets are pockmarked with closed restaurants, closed bars. But there's still people living very nice lives in the Hong Kong club, the China club, these rarefied Mayfair-style private members' clubs, and they still earn good money. They go to good restaurants. And that almost exists pretty separate from the lives most Hong Kongers lead. You know, it's very congested city, most expensive city in the world for housing. So there are big social issues besides the crackdown on civil rights and the COVID restrictions that have crimped things so much. When you were sort of speaking to expats who were there, what were they saying? I mean, talk us through, in particular, I know you went out on some boats, talk us through what was their attitude to to Hong Kong? The boat trip you mentioned was a nice day out to an island called Lama, which is southwest of Hong Kong. And it's a very typical Hong Kong expat day, a couple of boats moored up. Nice drinks, champagne, nice food, wine, swimming, paddleboarding, all very idyllic. And definitely the sentiment among that crowd and many other crowds like it is we don't really care about the new authoritarian Hong Kong. And um, so many people here, Brits, Americans, Australians, are actually quite happy and just want to keep on making money. So I don't want to generalise too much because there are plenty of expats who don't like the new Hong Kong with more of China's influence and the NSL, the national security laws, brought in in 2020 after the 2019 unrest. It criminalises a very broad range of things in very vague terms. So it's in effect made free speech very circumscribed and people are very afraid to breach it, you know, as maximum life in prison. At the same time, a colonial era sedition law has been revived. And recently, five speech therapists were jailed for sedition for publishing children's books depicting um, a village of sheep being terrorised by wolves. And this was seen as an allegorical story about mainland China terrorising Hong Kong. Hong Kong police say the stories are aimed at inciting hatred amongst young people towards the city's government. Those arrested were members of a speech therapist's union that produced books for children First convictions under the sedition law carry a maximum penalty of two years in prison. So um, the sedition law plus the NSL is a very wide-ranging, very aggressive toolkit for the Hong Kong government to use. But um, there are plenty of expats who who hate that and many have left. There are some who stay and don't like it quietly. But um, there's definitely a big group who were happy to see the NSL come in, really didn't like the 2019 unrest, saw it as rioting rather than protest, thought it was unrealistic to think that China would tolerate that kind of turmoil on its doorstep and thought what the protesters were asking for was unreasonable and um, who welcomed the NSL for stabilising things. They think the Western media has been too biased towards the protesters and against the Chinese government. And we should mention the way 
COVID restrictions closed off Hong Kong so aggressively for so long, you know, at, at the worst, there was a 21-day quarantine period to get into the city, which meant, uh, in effect, travel was impossible. So it has been closed off for a long time. There's a sense that people don't understand what's gone on there. A bit of a, a siege mentality, maybe. Take us back a step and just remind us a bit about Hong Kong and the, the sort of odd position it's inhabited for more than a century. Just give us a bit of the history. We shouldn't forget the Brits rolling the opium wars, selling huge amounts of opium into China and um, led to several treaties in which Hong Kong was gradually seized by the Brits. 1840 or 1841, I think, the, the first one. And it was gradually expanded in three treaties which China came to call the unequal treaties. And the view was that the Brits twisted China's arm behind his back and took the original Hong Kong island, then took the Kowloon side, going towards the mainland, and then um, 99 years before the 97 handover, bought a big chunk of China, basically. Most of the new territories, the big landmass that joins up with Shenzhen and the mainland, on a 99-year lease. And so as the lease expiry came into view in the late 70s, China made very clear, we want the whole thing back. So it had to be returned. Remind us of that moment in 1997 when it happened. Union Jack, waving for over a hundred years, was lowered slowly. Britain's colonial regime in Hong Kong, lasting for one and a half centuries, was ended. Deng Xiaoping made very clear that China wanted Hong Kong back. He reassured Margaret Thatcher that stocks will still sizzle, horses will still run, dance will still dance. He was setting the grounds for what became known as one country, two systems, this idea that Hong Kong could be part of China, but run in a very different way, squaring that circle of integrating a very vibrant capitalist entrepreneur with communist China. By entangling itself from Britain, Hong Kong became the first special administrative region of China. Special because the accession agreement allowed for at least 50 years Hong Kong to keep a certain autonomy. The city keeping its money, its own laws, its political system. It's this idea that China would respect the economic freedoms, the right to expression, free movement, the things that as a British colony, Hong Kong has had, although we should say they never had democracy. It was always a British colony with a governor appointed by Westminster. That's so interesting. So it's never really been democracy as we know it. Never, no. I mean, Hong Kong, Hong Kong has never had a democracy. It's always been a, a strange experiment, hasn't it? Kind of benign autocracy under the Brits and increasingly less benign autocracy under China. So although they had that sense of grievance of this being a lopsided agreement a hundred years before, they had seen the benefits of Britain being there. They had seen Hong Kong boom and presumably didn't want to lose all of that. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you st step back a minute, Hong Kong's one of the most phenomenal places in the world, isn't it? Almost 7,000 population when the Brits took it in um, 1840 or 1841, a city of 7 million now. The explosion in wealth, growth of companies, um, the growth of Hong Kong as a strategic hub, you know, shipping, finance, tourism. The sense I got was the Chinese running up to the handover, there was a bit of a sense of trepidation almost that they were being given this very precious thing, which accounted for a big chunk of China's GDP at the time. And there was a sense of not quite understanding it, being afraid to ruin this Ming vase they were being handed and carrying it very carefully. And I think that partly explains why for so many years after the handover, nothing actually changed for a long time, almost 25 years. 
us through some of the, the recent changes, because after this period of not really changing anything and making it feel like perhaps Hong Kong was going to continue as it always had been, things suddenly started to change quite dramatically. The key thing for Hong Kong as with China is the ascent of Xi Jinping in 2012. He was a relative unknown. He was supposed to rule alongside six other officials. But now it's clear that he's reshaped the Communist Party, the military and the government so that he's at the top of it all. Some call him the chairman of everything. He clearly took China in a different direction, building the dictatorship he now has, smashing opposition in China, cracking down on the Uyghur minority population, being more belligerent towards Taiwan, wanting to restore China to what he perceives as greatness. And so you've got that combination of China under him heading in a more autocratic direction, while Hong Kong actually wanted more freedom and a younger generation growing up who were maybe less respectful of the grey areas that had been there for a long time, which the older generations have worked under. Give us an example of the grey areas. Things like accepting that you haven't got universal suffrage. So mm. even the um, veteran pro-Democrat campaigners of old wouldn't have demanded independence from Beijing, say, which people started demanding in the late noughties. People were prepared to live within one country, two systems, and to accept it's never going to be a real democracy because it's part of China. But increasingly, younger generations wanted more, and that led to the Occupy movement in 2014, which also became the kind of yellow umbrella protest because kids were using that to fend off the tear gas sprayed by the police. Not even a thunderstorm could dampen the passion in Hong Kong streets tonight. Crowds stretching as far as the eye could see defied government appeals to go home. Demonstrators staying dry with the same umbrellas they used over the weekend to fend off tear gas, earning the nickname the Umbrella Revolution. That then set in train a series of events really with ructions over attempts to get more Democrats into the LegCo, the parliament. And then into 2019, the pro-democracy protest that turned into rioting, police brutality, protesters storming the LegCo building, which was seen as a big moment of sacrilege by Beijing burning the Chinese flag. Protesters have stormed the Legislative Council building, prompting the legislature to issue its first ever red security alert. Protesters repeatedly charged towards LegCo using metal trolleys, poles, barricades and pieces of scaffolding as they tried to force their way into the building. All these things are hugely, I mean, we, we know how prov provocative they are in the West, but you imagine you're in Beijing, you're increasingly worried about the, the harmony of your empire and uh, worried about potential breakaway regions. And you see this special administrative region, as they call Hong Kong, spiraling towards chaos. The response to that was the 2020 crackdown, so the national security law, the sedition law, the purging of non-patriotic people from the parliament came after several years where the younger Hong Kongers in particular, but also many middle-aged, middle-class Hong Kongers wanting more freedom and Beijing saying, no, actually, we're going to go the other way. You mentioned the NSL the national security law, which was brought in two years ago. And at the time, there were real fears that it would limit people's freedom. How much has it affected life in Hong Kong? The national security law basically applies to everyone. There have even been cases where 
China or Hong Kong have tried to claim that NSL applies to people in the UK or outside China and Hong Kong. So it's, it's potentially hugely wide ranging and um, criminalizes acts of secession, unpatriotic statements, collusion with foreign powers, which can include journalists. It's a very broad piece of legislation. There's a case of, they call the NSL 47, 47 high-profile people on the democratic side of Hong Kong politics arrested and facing prosecution and jail for trying to hold um, unofficial primaries to, to whittle down their list of democratic candidates ahead of an election. So the NSL has caught some big fish, but um, it is farcical. Some of the cases in which the sedition law and NSL have been applied. So there was an old man playing a... Hong Kong independence song on a three-stringed instrument at a bus stop who was arrested and the courts have been convulsed for months with his case over whether he's going to be prosecuted. There was a guy at the tribute to the Queen outside the British consulate playing the same song on a harmonica who was arrested. tune that was popularized in the 2019 movement but i mean the, the level of ridiculous sensitivity that the authorities seem to have is monty python-esque and does it apply to absolutely everybody in practice so far it hasn't been used against any westerners or expats that we know of if you're a westerner there if you keep your head down and don't get involved in politics you can pretty much live your life as you were you can still access the ft bloomberg the times sunday times mm. South China Morning Post. Your kids are at international schools, maybe, so their curriculum hasn't been changed in the way Hong Kong state schools' curriculum has been with patriotic education being brought in, so learning the teachings of Xi Jinping. And there are things like Hong Kong can no longer be described as a colony under the British. It was an occupied, illegally occupied territory in the new telling of the story. There's patriotic education, which is designed, I think, to start breeding out an early stage, what the Chinese would see as unpatriotic sentiments from Hong Kongers. Coming up, Oliver tells us about meeting one of the few famous protesters who's not in prison. That's after a quick message from a colleague. Hello. For those of you who haven't got a clue who we are, my name's Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Cover. If you're looking for a fresh take on all the latest news, take with a pinch of salt, this is the show for you. Off Air with Jane and Fee. So if you need a new show for your dreary old drive to work, your everyday dog walk, or just as white noise to drown out your offspring, then try us Off Air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the free Times Radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Over the past century, Hong Kong has become an economic powerhouse attracting businesses from all over the world to set up a regional base. New York, London and Hong Kong are the three largest financial centers on the planet. Hong Kong has a GDP of $365 billion and has one of the highest per capita incomes in the world. Hong Kong has done very well for itself as a global middleman. Hong Kong plays the important role as China's portal for accessing international capital markets. The new national security law, the NSL, with its creeping powers, has had a huge impact on the lives of residents. But what effect is it having on the businesses in Hong Kong? HSBC and Standard Chartered and Jardine Matheson all attracted ire in the West for putting out statements supporting the NSL, saying this was a good thing. HSBC now has come out in support. Peter Wong, the CEO, says we reiterate that we respect and support laws and regulations that will enable Hong Kong to recover and rebuild the economy. They all want a quiet life from the Chinese government. In the case of HSBC, Chinese state media had warned it would lose all its clients if it didn't support the NSL. It's a delicate position for a global firm like HSBC, which generates half of its profits in Asia, much of that tied to China. So there was elements of thuggery in the background. I would say that... um, This general increasing nationalism from China has affected business there. So um, one investment bank started hiring content moderators to check the Chinese language research its staff put out in case they offend sensibilities in China. One person at another bank who suggested moving the annual conference from Hong Kong to Singapore was fired. Was fired for suggesting it? For the temerity of suggesting moving it from Hong Kong be unpatriotic. So there, there are signs that this atmosphere of increasing control and belligerence from China is affecting business at the margins. And I guess what will happen probably is rather than having a big confrontation where a company takes on the Hong Kong government and people get prosecuted under the NSL or what have you, those who can't live with it will relocate to Singapore, Tokyo, Australia, and those who stay, which will be the majority, will self-censor. It's a difficult decision that many of Hong Kong's residents are now faced with. Do they stay? Do they go? And do they self-censor? Whilst Oliver was in Hong Kong, he met some of the pro-democracy activists and politicians who've watched Hong Kong change. You might remember one of them, Emily Lau. We spoke to her on the podcast back in 2020 as a national security law was first being passed. 
I'm Emily Lau. I'm a former member of the Hong Kong Legislative Council, and I'm the former chair of the Democratic Party. She's a great character. She and a guy called Martin Lee for a long time were the leading lights of the pro-democracy movement. They were real firebrands for many years. Martin Lee was arrested and jailed and is now out of jail, but has completely retired from any kind of commentary. Emily Lau was visited by the National Security Police and managed to avoid prosecution by retiring, shutting down her political party she was running at the time. But I did meet her while I was there. I had dinner with her, and um, she's a great character. She must be in her 70s now, I think. She's witty, got a very funny cackle, likes a joke, likes a curry. She likes a gossip. She understands how the media works. She knows all the key players going back over many years. She's seen governors or now chief executives come and go. She's a very sharp observer of things around the world. She's a great company. Three hours flew by. Lots of laughing amid everything else. And um, she's a good example of someone on that democratic side who was a realist, I think, was accepting of the status quo with China. The grey areas we mentioned, you know, you're not going to get proper Western-style democracy ever in Hong Kong. And she was, she said, all we want is the freedoms we were guaranteed under one country, two systems. One country, two systems, which is the essence of the whole handover, according to the joint declaration. And we can keep our free lifestyle and the mainland way of doing things will not happen in Hong Kong. But now it's like driving a truck through the joint declaration. That's why even Boris Johnson said, The enactment and imposition of this national security law constitutes a clear and serious breach of the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Emily Lau, you know, as you say, is a wonderful character. Is she able to talk freely now? Does she have to self-censor much more? It's interesting that she's not behind bars, but that must be an imminent threat. She can still speak to a degree, but there are obviously areas you can't go. I said to her, what do you spend most of your time doing now? And she said, visiting my friends in jail because they're all locked up. And she says they're kept in quite humane conditions. They can access books, they can exercise, they can eat okay, they can get visitors, but it is still jail. But um, she told me that she still mentors school students and university students, and she says to them, be brave, be careful, and don't give up. And she says when they protest, those things are contradictory. She says this is life. Life is full of contradictions, and you have to live as best you can within the circumstances you have. And she says what she won't do is lie flat. It's a term in the mainland. You know, people who, especially young people who give up in the face of China's huge drive of them to work harder and harder and controlling their lives. You lie flat, you stay in bed, you don't work. You kind of voluntarily withdraw from the outside world. It's a form of protest. Yeah, she was saying we won't do that. Back in 2020, when she spoke to us on Stories of Our Times, Emily Lau made it quite clear that she wasn't giving up. We just have to continue fighting. And actually, my dear friend, if you look around the world, there are many places going up in flames. Hong Kong is not yet that bad. But, you know, if I say I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, you would say, oh, Emily, were you born yesterday? 
you're living under Chinese communist rule. <laughs> but I have to be. As some people say, hey, Emily, why change a habit of a lifetime? <laughs> so I will continue. And officially, the one country, two systems policy was supposed to last until 2047. It sounds like it's already being eroded quite a lot, but what happens after 2047 if it's already being eroded now? How much do things change then? I think probably not very is the slightly unexciting answer. Um, someone who had spoken to a senior Chinese official said they described it as like a lease renewal. I think there'll be some ceremony around it, maybe a reframing of the relationship. But um, as you say, the big changes are happening now. Things will play out before then. And what now for the people there? You've seen huge emigration figures already. So hundreds of thousands of people have left. 100,000 Hong Kongers have settled in the UK under the visa scheme the government offered. In total, some 5.4 million Hong Kong citizens could ultimately be eligible under a new visa scheme which affords Hong Kongers an expedited path to British citizenship. Britain launched the scheme for holders of a special British national overseas passport after Beijing imposed a sweeping national security law on Hong Kong. Plenty of expats have left, so you would instinctively think those who want to leave and can leave have left. Years ago, an American academic coined a term for the Chinese censorship model. He described it as the anaconda in the chandelier. And this is idea that this snake is always up there in the chandelier and it's only got to come down and strike people once in a while to instill fear in everyone. And then after a while, people start self-censoring because they want to preemptively avoid any anaconda interaction. Mm. So um, there's this thing in Hong Kong now of very strong self-censorship and people avoiding sensitive areas, especially if you're a, a foreign journalist who's in town for a short period of time, they're afraid to be seen colluding with a foreign power. But... um. I went to the impromptu vigil that sprang up for the Queen because she died while I was there. And outside the British consulate, there were a load of flowers, shrines, pictures, candles, handwritten notes, cards, very moving tableau. And it struck you that 25 years since the British left, and there's still this immense cultural affinity with the UK in Hong Kong. And um, it turned into a bit of a rare protest. People were writing notes in cards saying things like, Dear Queen, thank you for everything you did for us. We missed the Brits. It was a happier time for Hong Kong. We had the rule of law. We had prosperity. We had freedom. Now we're in darkness. Since I was born, I have always been under her reign until 1997. I used to see her a lot in our coins, in our stamps, on TV. We have a very distant relationship, but yet very familiar and um, spoke to a few people in the queue. And it was striking the range of ages, actually, from kids who had no memory, really, of colonial times or the Queen, who still had this ideal in their head that it was a period of relative freedom and opportunity to people who were in their 50s, 60s, who did remember it. And there was one guy, he said he lay in bed crying all night when he heard Hong Kong was going to be handed back to China because he knew it was going to change. 
And he said that um, in the past few years, his fears had finally come to pass. He said something like, China will never win. It will never be able to conquer Hong Kong in the way it wants to and assert this kind of cultural control. And I said, why? And he said, you've got an iPhone. And I said, yeah. And he said, would you go back to a Nokia? I imagine over time, tourism will come back to a degree. Business will come back to a degree. I think people who go there as tourists will be like tourists going to Dubai where you can't do certain things, right? And if you're a business person, you're there to do business, but they're going to not be involved in social or political activities. They're going to make money and keep their heads down. But um, Hong Kong is this kind of vibrant West Berlin on the edge of a very different statist country. That's over and I, I can't see it coming back. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Oliver Shah, Associate Editor at The Sunday Times. You can find all of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.